The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. It doesn't have a fixed character. It's a mindset that has to do with a respect for human rights and civil liberties, toleration of different religions, and ability to live with ambiguity. So I like the idea of liberal as a qualifier on other and more specific and coherent commitments. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. In his recent book, Francis Fukuyama wrote a line that really caught me off guard. He wrote, it is liberalism rather than democracy that has come under the sharpest attack in recent years. His point is, most countries have not abandoned the outer trappings of democracy. They still hold multi-party elections. They still have representative assemblies. Instead, what we often attribute as democratic backsliding is actually a rejection of liberal principles such as human rights or the rule of law. Still, liberalism is often the source of disagreement and debate. The word even means different things to different people. In the United States, it typically means left-wing politics. However, classical liberalism is associated with free market intellectuals like Hayek, Friedman, and Mises. It's a difficult idea to wrap our heads around. So I wanted to do a deep dive into liberalism with three of the most celebrated writers on the subject. Over the next three weeks, I will speak with Michael Walzer, Patrick Deneen, and Francis Fukuyama to help us better understand liberalism. All three have different ideas about the subject. Michael Walzer fully embraces liberalism, while Patrick Deneen offers a sophisticated critique of it. Finally, Francis Fukuyama generally defends liberalism, but has some important caveats. This three-episode arc will begin today with Michael Walzer. Michael is an emeritus professor at the Institute for Advanced Study. He was a longtime editor of the journal Dissent, and his book, Spheres of Justice, is considered one of the classics of contemporary political philosophy. For those who still don't recognize the name, he's simply a giant of political theory and thought. Fortunately, he has a new book out today called The Struggle for a Decent Politics on Liberal as an Adjective. So this episode kicks off the conversations about liberalism with a deep dive into the ideas of his new book. Now, if you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can hear the next two conversations on liberalism that will come out next week and the week after. You can also give the podcast a five-star rating 
on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Like always, you will find a complete transcript at democracyparadox.com. You'll also find some great posts on the blog from a range of different writers. If you'd like to write a post for the blog, please send me an email to jkempf at democracyparadox.com. But for now, this is my conversation with Michael Walzer. Michael Walzer, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. I'm glad to be here. Well, Michael, your newest book is very fascinating. It's called The Struggle for a Decent Politics on Liberal as an Adjective. And in the book, you actually start with a question. You ask, is liberalism an ism like all the other isms? I think it once was. It implies to me that liberalism is no longer an ideology. But if it's not an ideology, what is it? Well, I think it still has the form of an ideology in some places. It's not a single or coherent ideology. In Europe, liberalism refers to what we call libertarianism. It's generally a right-wing doctrine. Sometimes it appears on the kind of anarchist left in the United States. As I said a minute ago, liberalism is New Deal liberalism. It's our version, a very modest version of social democracy. It would be better called social democracy except for the strangeness of American political vocabulary. Neoliberalism is a repudiation of New Deal liberalism, but not a full repudiation, in some cases more, some cases less. So it doesn't have a fixed character. And I think for most people, what liberalism means, it's a mindset that has to do with a respect for human rights and civil liberties toleration of different religions and ability to live with ambiguity. And those qualities are very important, but they don't add up to a full-scale ideology. They don't determine your views about the economy, for example. So I like the idea of liberal as a qualifier on other and more specific and coherent commitments. As I was reading your book and continued to think of liberalism as an adjective rather than as a noun, it definitely gave me the impression of liberalism as a mindset, almost like an approach rather than being something that's a form of identity. How does that change the way that we think about liberalism when we think of it more as a mindset or an approach or a way of doing things? rather than being something that somebody just is? Um, Well, I think it is possible to be a liberal. And sometimes I can't help using the word that way in the book. I like Lauren Bacall's definition, one of my favorite actresses. She said a liberal is someone who doesn't have a small mind. And that is an identity, that you can be a liberal in the sense of having a certain kind of generosity in the political world, of accepting ambiguity, living with difference, 
defending the rights and liberties of people you disagree with. That is an identity. But with regard to political commitments like socialism or democracy, that identity functions as a qualifier on the meaning of democracy or socialism or nationalism. So can somebody be liberal in one area and illiberal in others? Like you've mentioned democracy and socialism. Can somebody be a liberal Democrat, but be an illiberal socialist or vice versa? Well, human beings are very, very complicated. And I raise exactly that question in the chapter on liberal professors. If I can imagine a professor who holds strongly liberal views on human rights and civil liberties, but is an authoritarian in the classroom. In fact, that's a fairly common <laughs> phenomenon. So, yes, I think human beings are capable of remarkable inconsistencies. So to kind of jump over to that chapter about professors, I found it fascinating because I got the impression that you thought it was necessary to be a liberal professor to really be committed to your profession. That if the professor didn't have a sense of liberalism, of tolerance for other views, of respecting their students, that they somehow didn't fulfill their professional obligations. Is it possible for somebody to be illiberal in their politics, but a liberal professor, somebody who's a good professor that respects their students, respects their colleagues, and contributes to the classroom in that way? There are many ways of relating to young people, to students, and I suspect that some of the great teachers have been authoritarian figures and have both inspired a respect for learning, but also a critical response, a response of um, opposition. I don't think it's a necessary feature of being a good teacher, a, a good professor, to be a a liberal. I do think that the most successful classrooms would be those where the teacher was able to insist upon his own authority as an elder and a, a more learned person and still respect the capacity, the ambition, and sometimes the opposition of his students. So to bring this back to politics, do you believe that there's specific policies or laws that are really central to what we describe as liberal politics? Because a moment ago, you mentioned different types of liberal politics, like social democracy, and then there's neoliberalism that almost contradicts it on every single economic policy. Are there any real specific policies or laws that are central to a liberal form of politics in the end? I would think the crucial thing would be any institutional arrangements or laws or constitutions which set limits on power. I think that is probably the clearest injunction of the adjective liberal. And it's especially clear in the case of our democracy, where we do believe, most of us, 
that there are limits on what a majority can do, and those limits are set by our Constitution, and the institution of the Supreme Court is supposed to enforce those limits on executive and legislative power. I think in different versions, that idea of setting of limits is crucial to the work of the adjective liberal. How important is democracy for a liberal politics? Like when we talk about liberal socialism, liberal Judaism, liberal feminism, we can talk about in so many different areas of politics, so many different areas of thinking. Is democracy central to all of those, or is democracy kind of its own form of politics that's separate? Is it necessary to liberalism? I don't think necessary would be the right word, because I don't believe that the classroom should be democratic. The university is not a democratic institution, although there should be limits on the power of administrators and professors, but it isn't a democracy. And political movements like feminism may or may not be internally democratic, but they certainly aren't democratic in the sense that you're giving a vote to your fellow citizens who aren't feminists. It is an an interesting argument about whether interest groups and political campaigns and organizations engaged in long-term struggle can be or should be fully democratic. But those are questions that I would address only concretely in very specific instances. For example, I, I am very critical of socialist vanguards, the role of the vanguard that literally believes it is at the head of a movement, and it's there because it knows the destination. It has knowledge that the followers don't have. That kind of movement organization, I think, if it leads to any kind of democracy, it will lead to an illiberal democracy. When you're talking about a vanguard, I get the impression you're talking about Leninism and the form of communism that we saw spring up in places like the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China, as well as some other countries. In the book, you write, the adjective liberal means that a socialist society can be achieved only with the consent of the people as they are here and now, with all their differences of character, belief, and ability, and it must be fought for democratically. Does the absence of democracy in those situations, does it turn socialist movements into something else then? I think that Leninist movements are likely to lead to authoritarian regimes if they are successful, precisely because the vanguard has knowledge of the way things should be, the historical destination of humankind that the followers don't have. And so if they win power, they will rule as an authoritarian elite. So the struggle for socialism or for social democracy or the struggle for democratization in countries that have had authoritarian regimes, the struggle has to have democratic commitments. I don't know if 
but you can always rule the movement by a popular vote. The conditions for internal democracy may be difficult, but you want leaders who are somehow accountable. Even if the institutions don't yet exist, we want leaders who are committed to those institutions. So to look at the other side of the coin, instead of something like socialism or even communism, to look at neoliberals, they're oftentimes described as conservatives in the United States. But conservatism can be kind of its own mindset, its own way of thinking about the world that can be different from liberalism. Is it possible to be a conservative liberal or a liberal conservative? Um, yes, I think so. Liberal as an adjective can apply in some cases, maybe not with full consistency. I think those neocons who have become never-Trumpers are a kind that is a liberal politics. They may not be liberal all the way down, <laughs> but yes, they are defending liberal democracy against a real threat. I think there have been liberal Republicans. In fact, I describe in the book my closest friend in high school, who was the nephew of the local Republican Party boss. And I tell the story of how the two of us went to listen to Joe McCarthy at a fairground near Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where we lived. And we both had negative responses. He was disgusted. This was not his kind of republicanism. And I was frightened. It certainly was not my idea of democracy or social democracy. So yes, and we disagreed, but respected each other. So yes, I think that may be a vanishing breed among Republicans today, but it has existed in the past. In the book, you also talk about liberal nationalism or liberal nationalists. And you write, the adjective liberal turns nationalism into a universalist doctrine. What does it mean then to be a liberal nationalist? Well, it means to respect everyone else's nationalism. And especially it means to respect the nationalism that comes next. So the test of Turkish nationalists is the Kurds. The test of Chinese Han nationalism is people of Tibet or the Muslims of the Northwest. The test of Israeli Zionism is the Palestinians. So a liberal nationalist is someone who believes, yes, I have a right, my people have a right to self-determination, but so does every other people. And Mazzini, who in some ways is the first ideologist of nationalism, is a perfect example of someone like that who founded Young Italy and then went on to found Young Germany, Young Switzerland, Young Poland. <laughs> he believed in a multiplicity of national liberation or national self-determination movements. You mentioned earlier that one of the books that really influenced your thought was from Yuli Tamir. Can you talk a little bit about how she actually influenced or changed how you thought about liberalism? Or on the other hand, maybe did she just confirm some of the thoughts you already had? 
Well, she was a student in one of my classes, so I hope I had some influence on her, and she has had influence on me. She went on to Oxford and wrote a dissertation with Isaiah Berlin, who is the classic liberal, 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 and she defends the idea of cultural, political self-determination, but in a context that recognizes the rights of the others. It's a nuanced and sustained argument intended to be general, but also obviously an affirmation of her own liberal Zionism, which puts her right now, I suppose, very much in the opposition in Israel today. But she was for a while politically engaged and then became a college president of an arts college. But yes, I learned from her book, and I've learned from Isaiah Berlin. What did you learn from Isaiah Berlin? Well, I learned the importance of pluralism, the ability without being a relativist or without sinking too deeply into relativism, I learned to acknowledge the possibility of plural truths or at least to acknowledge the legitimacy or the validity of different viewpoints. There is a saying in the Talmud, it's a description of two different legal opinions, two different schools of legal thought, legal argument. And the comment of the later Talmudic rabbinic writer is, these and those are the words of the living God, even though they're contradictory. And that's one of those lines you have to think about (laughs) a long time. And in fact, the commentator goes on to prefer one of them, but to acknowledge that both of them are, whatever this means, the words of the living God. And I think something like that in Protestant Reformation thought, the notion God's house has many mansions. What does that mean? There are many different ways of living within God's house. That's a radical idea. It doesn't have to be a relativist idea. It can still say, I have reasons for living in one of those mansions, but I respect people who live in the others. And that's, yeah, that's Isaiah Berlin. I think, the central message of his writing. So how do you feel that the meaning of liberalism has changed over time? Well, in the 19th century, it really was something like what we call libertarianism. And in our own time, in something like the anti-vaccine movement or the refusal to put on a mask, I guess these people would describe themselves as libertarians and Once they would have been called liberals, and now liberal means almost the opposite. American liberals, New Deal liberals, believe in the importance of using state power to protect and enhance individual lives. So New Deal liberalism is different from every previous idea of what liberalism meant. I prefer to call it social democracy, but that is what American liberals believe, I think. Do you feel that the mindset has changed over time, over the centuries, or do you feel like the consequences of that mindset have changed? 
well, the consequences are different in every concrete situation. I am sure that the person in 600 of the common era who wrote that line, these and those are the words of the living God, that's a liberal. (laughs) That's a liberal statement. And I'm sure there were people who thought absolutely not this and not that is the word of the living God. So yes, I think that the basic ideas of liberalism, the absence of the small-mindedness, goes way back. It is a universal human possibility. So do you feel that liberalism is something that's a part of human nature, that all humans are liberals or have the capacity to be liberal in different ways? The second thing, I believe that, yes, the absence of small-mindedness, the qualities that I've been calling liberal, are human possibilities, universal human possibilities. And some evidence of that is that they're under attack everywhere. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. To mention the book one more time, it's called The Struggle for a Decent Politics on Liberal as an Adjective. I highly recommend everybody to read it. Thank you so much for writing it. Thank you so much for joining me again today. Thank you, Justin. Thank you. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends because word of mouth goes very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.